Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for Hour 2 of Guide Talk. If you are new to the show, where have you been? But Guide Talk is a question and answer. All you have to do is send over your questions, and my power panel is Tom Parrish and Aaron Broughton. They will do their very best to answer your questions. And when I say power panel, their power comes from the Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where their power comes from. They have... What? No power of your own? That kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> Don't have much there. <laughs> yeah. But Aaron, you're the new kid on the street this week. So again, for people who just got in their car and just joined the program, maybe a, a little, a quick, uh, a quick elevator um, speech on who you are. Sure. Well, it's great to be here. I'm the pastor at Victory Baptist Church in Maple Grove and originally grew, grew up in the Brainerd area and uh, our family ministered uh, in Israel for several years, and then uh, down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, at our mission headquarters. So we've been involved in Jewish missions now for, oh my, going on 25 years now. Um, and then on top of that, I just have a heart for the local church. So I've been involved in that and pastoring as well. So uh, it's great to be back up in the Northwoods, put it that way. Yes. And Tom Parrish, uh, re- remind people what you do as well. Well, I'm retired and working full-time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I've, I've pastored for the last 48 years, uh, a lot of congregations, and uh, I'm pastoring right now, preaching and teaching every Sunday down in St. Paul's Lutheran Church, downtown Minneapolis. Nice. Still, still do a lot of writing, writing books. I've got two more on the way. I uh, love doing this program. So the Lord has been kind to me at my old age, keeping me involved. That's awesome. Thank you for that. If you have a question, let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Nine three three two four eight four. All right, gentlemen. Why are there verses missing from the Bible? Sixteen verses from the New Testament in the NIV, if I'm not mistaken. Well, without knowing specifically what verses we're talking about, I can't even really speculate. Simply because I don't know, and um, I, I don't. I I need more information than that. Is it what gospel is it that is it Mark or? There would be a few. So I think what the the listener is referring to, there are a few verses that, if you look at let's let's say uh, New American Standard NIV, something along that line, you compare it to let's say a, a King James version or New King James even, and there are a couple verses. We actually last hour we were talking about Matthew eighteen, uh, verse eleven says, "For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost," and that specific verse is not found in those other translations. And there's a few others, like uh, the ending of Mark, for example, mm-hmm. that's sometimes that's in dispute of. as well. What it has to do ultimately is with different uh, texts that are used uh, when when comparing it to that. And so that's sometimes where you look at it. So what I would suggest is you look at the footnotes that are in a lot of these different newer translations for that, and um, you might get some clarity on that. So. Now, I don't sense my experience with this. I don't think any of the translators were trying to be deceptive. I think what they were doing is they they have to work with an economy of words. When you start dealing with the Hebrew or the Greek, 
one word could go a long way. I mean, you could have almost a paragraph on it. So they, they have to narrow that down. Now, to leave out a big piece of theology is a mistake. Um, and I need to go back and look at that because that shouldn't be there. But I would like to look in the footnotes to see what they have to say about that. Usually they give an address and say the reason this isn't included is because, you know, three manuscripts from, you know, earlier did not have this in it. We're simply using the, the manuscript from that era, not from the, you know, 12th century or something like that. But I haven't, I've sat with translators. I've been in translator rooms. Uh, God's Word, which is done by the Missouri Senate out of Cleveland. I sat with them for a whole day. And, I mean, they really struggled with one word at a time trying to give the right understanding. And so I admired that a lot. Thank you for that, Tom Parrish. All right, next question. Are blessings metaphysical? Should I remind you what metaphysical means? Well, for the listeners, yes. For for those of us who work with it every day. Yeah, <laughs> tell us, Bill. <laughs> uh, derived from the Greek meta, referring to an idea, doctrine, or posited reality outside of human sense perception. So it's outside of human sense perception. So are blessings metaphysical? I don't know how to answer that. So as a guy talked to us trying to figure this out. So something like, you know, do we get blessed without realizing it? I'm outside. Yeah. Outside of human sense perception. I mean, I, we have blessings all the time, don't we? That we're completely unaware of. You're driving home. And if you could have played the tapes over, God's spared you from being in a car crash. Right. Cause you didn't, but you didn't, you weren't aware of it cause he spared you. Right. Yeah. I, I think that that's kinda, a blessing. I think it kind of dovetails with uh, grace. Um, what is grace is basically God's divine favor, unmerited favor. Uh, the outflow of that is blessings. Right. I don't even think we can count our blessings. You know, you throw a song, count your blessings one by one. Well, good luck, because we get so many, we're not even aware of it. I think too often we take things for granted. But the Lord, I don't see it as simply a metaphysical type thing where, you know, sometimes when people use metaphysical, they're also moving into the realm like karma and other things like that. No, there is an intention behind it, and there is an intelligent intention from the Lord. He gives us his grace, he gives us his blessings to fulfill his purposes. And that's why I think it's important to understand that when we walk in his purposes, uh, it's amazing how many doors he opens, how many opportunities he gives, uh, how many resources come in that we weren't even expecting in the first mm-hmm. place. So there are many, many blessings like that. All right. Next question. Does salvation depend on church attendance? Can someone say they believe in Jesus but do not feel the need to attend church? This question came up in a recent Bible study. I've heard that before. I, my personal reaction is this. I want to talk to this person to find out why they're upset with the church. Because there's an underlying, something's going on there, either from their youth or from elsewhere. You know, it's like saying, can I get married but not have a bride or a groom? Well, it's a little tough. I mean, you can go through a ceremony and have somebody, you can say the right words, but if there's nobody else there. Jesus does not separate the church from believing in him. He makes it one entity. So unless that individual can show me specifically where Jesus says, believing in me and ignoring the church— in the New Testament is sufficient, uh, I would have to say to that person, you got to rethink what you're doing. Mm, okay. Thank you for that, Tom Parrish. Uh, open 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, 
And the question is, how do we hand over a fellow Christian to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, according to 1 Corinthians 5.5? 5? Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate that. Boy, you got kicked to the curb fast, didn't that, you? That's okay. Hey, yeah. He's been on for an hour now. It's... Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, delivering some, such a one to Satan for you know destruction of the flesh. So this is uh, what's going on in Corinthians. The church at Corinth had numerous problems. A lot of uh, moral ish- immorality was going on. Um, and that's what especially chapter 5 is dealing with that. And so it's like, okay, you're allowing sin or the sinner to be in, in your church, you know, or in, in that group. And you can't just l- overlook uh, major sin like what was going on. Um, and so the idea is to deliver such a one to Satan. So one thought is that, you know, this is like excommunication from the church. We actually talked about church discipline last hour, mm-hmm. kind of kind of dovetails a little bit with that. Um, this also could be simply maybe like a some type of a punishment or a, a discipline matter that, that could be uh, there. That's, that's all it looks as it. But again, the idea ultimately is restoration because when you get to 2 Corinthians, it's like, okay, Corinth, uh, Church of Corinth, you did a great job of uh, taking care of this guy, but, you know, you went too far. You haven't let him back in yet. You know, there is a there is a point of restoration that's involved there. So, but the thing is this, we can't overlook sin. And I'll be honest with you, in, in churches today, there's a lot of things that really just, just overlooked. Maybe we're just trying to please people, but ultimately you have to please God. As, you know, as pastors in particular, man, we have to stand before the Lord. Oh, yeah. um, that's a humbling thought. Yes, it is. And so I, I think, you know, do we treat people with respect and care? Absolutely. But when sin is, sin is so rampant, it's like, do, do we just overlook it? You know, and I don't think we can, honestly. Well, it's, it comes back to, are we going to speak the truth of Jesus to one another or not? It's very easy to say, hey, Aaron, I'm, I know what you're doing is not right. I know that you're living in sin. I know that you've done this and that. But we really like your tithing at the church, and we'd like you to keep coming. When we compromise the truth of Jesus because we want to keep people happy, that's wrong. Now, do I want to destroy somebody? No. I want to see somebody redeemed. But oftentimes we don't understand. We, here's what I run into. In Christianity, we've gotten this idea that grace and loving people means gentleness, that we can never, ever say no. We can never raise our voice. That's foolishness. Jesus did that. He did it with a lot of people, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We have to be willing to say, Aaron, I love you enough to tell you the truth. Buddy, you're wrong. And what you're doing is going to destroy your family and destroy you. But most of all, it's going to destroy your relationship with Jesus. I don't know how often that happens in the local church. It's a great question, Tom. But it needs to be done if we're going to be the church of Jesus Christ rather than an organization that has nice dinners. And that's what many churches have become. We've adopted the world and everything else into it. And yet we're afraid to tell people this isn't what the Lord wants. One of the saving graces I had years ago was when I I just read an article about why so many pastors leave the ministry, and it's a large number, unfortunately. It's because pastors are trying to carry the burden of other people's sin or trying to answer their problems out of their own human uh, well-being. The Lord taught me a lesson. He said, he taught me in my heart, he said, Tom, you're not the Savior. Quit trying to be the Savior. What you can do is offer people invitations and opportunities to follow me. And so once I began to do that, then I would say to, I'll pick on Aaron since he's here, if he was doing something that was way out of line with the church, Aaron, it doesn't matter what I think about what you're doing. You tell me what Jesus thinks about what you're doing. 
how are you going to answer to Jesus for the, the behavior you're in or the attitude you developed? Because ultimately, he's the Savior. It's not me. It's him. But we're even afraid to do that because we don't want to lose anybody. Well, sometimes the church has to lose people so they grow up and change. Mm. When someone's in rebellion or act of sin, something in willful disobedience, if they're stepping out on their marriage and it's being known to the pastor and elders, and I, I would imagine those conversations don't go well. Well, they generally don't go well because the person doesn't want to hear it. Right. But I remind people, you're going to have to give an account to Jesus for what you're doing. You're not going to get away with this. Sooner or later, it's going to come back to haunt you. And quite frankly, do you really want to put a curse on your children and your grandchildren by your behavior now? It's time to repent and own what you've done. And I'll be honest, I have seen men and women repent under those circumstances. It's marvelous to see. I've seen others who haven't. And I will tell you, the future years were not good at all. They were painful and sorrowful uh, and hurtful. And I think that one of the things we don't understand is, is Aaron and I are called as pastors to build the kingdom of God. We are not asked to build our own kingdom. And too often, I think we're afraid of losing people. We're afraid of losing the money. We're afraid people might be upset. And the bottom line is, the only one we should fear is the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right. We'll we'll take a break. Lots more guy talk ahead. Want to know what your question is? Great questions. 877-933-2484. Any question you have. We'll be right back. Tom Parrish and Aaron Broughton are my guests. We'll be returning in 90 seconds. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And right now, there are kids in desperate need of Jesus, food and medical care. This is your time to become their champion, to change their life. When you sponsor just one child, you plant seeds of hope in their heart and you work together with people on the ground to change the families, communities, and the future of these kids. You might not be able to change the world, but for one child, you can change theirs. Meet the kids. Find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to the show. It's time for Guy Talker, Guys Who Talk. I've got Aaron Broughton with me today, who's brand new, and he spells his last name B-R-A-A-T-E-N. That's correct. And yet you are still connected in some shirt tail relation to the hockey player named Aaron Broughton, which I find amazing. Yeah, just... uh both of our families are originally from the Canadian border and uh, in Minnesota. And so, um, yeah, good family. I love it. And Tom Parrish is with me as well. All right, here's an easy question, guys. Uh, I had someone ask me to explain the Trinity. Is there an easy answer? Yes and no. Okay. I'd agree. Yeah, good way to put it. Who wants to go first? <sighs> the Trinity, the Bible is pretty emphatic in an indirect way that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Do we we come the closest in Matthew, where Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There you get the Trinitarian formula. Many of us have a hard time, people have a hard time putting that together because they, they want to make a hierarchy out of heaven. So there's God, and then there's Jesus, and then there's the Holy Spirit where traditionally Christianity is taught there's one God 
revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal, and they all are in total uh, cooperation with one another. They totally work together. It's a tough one for people to understand because we don't think in those terms. Uh, But if we didn't have Jesus come and walk among us, you know, God the Father is spirit. So is the Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure that we'll ever, quote, see the Father or the Holy Spirit in eternity. But Jesus we will see because he became human among us. And that's how much he loves us. So looking at the Trinity, um, you don't find Jesus, for example, teaching a huge sermon dissertation on that. I think we, as pastors, we try our best to explain it, but I mean, it's like you, you, we barely scratch the surface. There's one passage of Scripture. In fact, I just taught this to our folks here just the other week. In John 14, verse 16, uh, he's, there's actually three assurances that Jesus gave to his disciples before he goes to the cross, before he is resurrected, but he says, I will pray the Father, he'll give you another comforter or uh, another helper mm-hmm. that he may abide with you forever. So you see the Trinity at work. Yeah. I, that's God the Son, Jesus, pray to God the Father, he'll give you a helper or a comforter, that's God the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. So the three are working together in the life of the believer. That's an assurance there. And the fact that uh, they're all, you know, in essence, a person, and seeing them work together in this way, this is just very powerful. And that should assure the believer that God is working uh, beyond all that we could ask or think in our lives. The problem is we're human beings. We're always in competition with one another. We're always trying to do better than the other person. We're always trying to have a little more than the other person. And I don't think we comprehend that there is no competition among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They work in perfect harmony. They have the same mind, the same heart, the same desire, and therefore they're in total cooperation. I think oftentimes we don't understand that because, quite honestly, in this life we don't experience that. Because even if you're married to the most wonderful person in the world, there are times you have animated discussions. You know, you're at odds with one another or you don't see things the same way. We don't live that way, but the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do. When you think of the baptism of Jesus and he comes out of the waters and the heavens open and the dove descends and the voice of God, I mean, there's a pretty profound moment of the Trinity. Oh, yes. That doesn't mean it makes it easier to explain, but there is the loud and clear evidence of it. It's there if you really want to look for it. It's there over and over. As a matter of fact, uh, I did a study and I prepared a lesson on this. There are seven direct statements in the new testament that's one of them yeah matthew is another one that show us the trinity yeah it's all over yeah it's Genesis there this is one yeah. it's all over mm-hmm. it's there yeah all right um why are maccabees excluded in most bibles aaron i'm looking at you okay <laughs> sounds good so maccabees the books of maccabees are known as as a, a group of writings called the apocrypha and so that is uh, we, when we talk about uh, just history itself. This is this was written or compiled at least during what we would consider the 400 silent years between the time of the prophets, like say Malachi, for example. And then you reach Matthew. So there's around 400 years in that gap. So just because there wasn't anything uh, written scripture doesn't mean there was nothing going on. And so the book of Maccabees is uh, first and foremost a historical book, and then there are other uh, uh, works as well. Um, Judith, Bell and the Dragon. There's there's other writings that are included in that. And so, but it was never really taken as 
scripture, believed a scripture. Now, uh, maybe like in Roman Catholic Church or Orthodoxy, they would they would include it to some degree that way. But historically, at least in a Protestant group, we don't view that as scripture itself, as inspired. But it does have value. It does have, in fact, by looking at Maccabees, you find out, you know, around Christmas time, the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah. Well, the Hanukkah story comes from the Maccabees, and then you go to John 10, verse 22, Jesus is on the temple in the Feast of Winter, um, and it, that's where he said, I and the Father are one. So the Feast of Dedication that's referring to is Hanukkah, which is from the book of Maccabees. So by looking at that, that kind of creates a landscape for Jesus in the first century and for his disciples. So there's mm-hmm. some value to read it. It's Historically, it's valuable. We don't want to dismiss that, and I encourage people to read that stuff. But the New Testament, uh, when they put the New Testament together, it doesn't have in it the plan of salvation. It doesn't really show the covenant in the way that we understand it from the Old and the New Testament. It really doesn't go into those kind of details. And the when they compiled the New Testament, they had a set of criteria that they felt was inspired by the Holy Spirit because the object of the New Testament is to bring us to Jesus. And Maccabees is a great book. I mean, I love to read Josephus. I still do. Great history there. Uh, but it is not pointing us to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Tom Parrish and Aaron Broughton. Next question up, uh, gentlemen. What is meant by the rod of connection? I'm sorry, the rod of correction <laughs> in the Bible. What is meant by the rod of correction? And I think that has to do with spanking children and is that connected to that at all? What we've seen in the last 50 years, how successful, you know, Dr. Spock's teaching on that has been and what we don't spank kids or discipline them anymore because they're all mature and doing the right thing. And we have no issues with kids these days. Sarcasm uh, alert. Well, oh, they are boy. in my neighborhood. Yeah, <laughs> so. I know. There's a lot of problems. The bottom line is the, the, the ride was never meant to be to beat a child with. The ride is you get a good whack to get your attention. And it was part of the attention-gaining process to where they could be taught or retaught what they were doing. Today, even in the school systems, uh, my, my wife, uh, a retired principal from Minneapolis, got so disgusted with the Minneapolis public school system because some of the teachers there actually said to her, well, we don't need to talk to the parents about these things. We know more than the parents do. Mm. Now, when you have that kind of an attitude, what you're doing is you're, you're circumventing what the Lord has designed in terms of discipline, and quite frankly, sometimes we need to be whacked on the bottom to get our head in the right place. But it's not meant to be punishment in this. You don't beat somebody with a belt. We're not talking about that. Mm-hmm. And the concept of the rod, it was probably a very, what we understand is a small rod. It stung, but it didn't really hurt you too bad. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a difference between discipline and abuse. Oh, yeah. yeah. And definitely we do not condone abuse at all, absolutely. None. There's a place for it. I think it's interesting talking about that verse. There's a friend of ours in Israel that had a child. In Israel, spanking is illegal. Corporal punishment is illegal. And so, but anyways, they had discipline problems. To make a long story short, they talked to the teachers about that. And and my friend pointed out that verse in Proverbs. Mm. Spoil the rod, spoil the child, or type of thing. Spare the rod, spoil the child. And their response is simply, oh, we don't know what he meant by that. Yeah. Wow. My mom's rod of correction was just looking at me a certain way. You had that too, huh? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> that was good enough for me. <laughs> uh, all right, we're going to take a short break, but lots more guy talk ahead. Let me know what you have. 877-933-2484. 
Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. an enjoyable time of the week. I love guy talk or guys who talk. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish and Pastor Aaron Broughton. We're very much looking forward to hearing from you because I bet you have a question rumbling around in your head. 877-933-2484. Send it over. All right, gentlemen, I'm looking in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 32, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. What a powerful message in the book of Joel. And that's a message that we need to hear over and over and over again, because I think the devil is very good at convincing us, you've gone too far, he's not going to forgive you for that one, there's no hope. And Joel is simply reflecting on what ultimately came through our Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the Savior. But it was always the will of the Father and of the Holy Spirit and of God the Son before the Incarnation that everybody be saved. And if you call on his name, and he also promises those who search for me will find me when they search for me with all their hearts. So there is always time, and you can call on the name of the Lord to be saved, and your family can, but don't wait till tomorrow. The time is right now. Today is the day of salvation. Mm-hmm. There's an ongoing theme within the... Joel's a part of the Minor Prophets, mm-hmm. which was called called the Twelve, because there's 12 of them. They're not minor because they're minor in importance. It's just they're smaller. Um, but there's an ongoing theme in each of these that there is impending judgment because of sin, and God's not going to look overlook that forever. And so it's like judgment's coming, but Lord, this is kind of the overall theme. In your judgment, remember mercy. And so there is definitely time. So, I mean, that's encouragement in this life today for anyone who you're away from God. Maybe you're, you, those listening don't know the Lord. You don't know Jesus. Tell you what, this is the time. This is the time to get things right with God. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's a interesting question. Proverbs 16.31 says that a long life is the reward of the righteous. But if we listen to what Paul says in Philippians, Paul says that he longs to go be with Christ, which would be far better. So, how long a life is a blessing? Paul just, says, just, I, I'd rather just go be with the Lord. I think if we think in terms of long life as simply the number of years, we have a hard time dealing with Christian children that die young, people that get cancer, things like that. What it's saying in Proverbs is true. But I think we've got to look at it with the rest of the New Testament. A life well lived is a life that does the Lord's will, no matter how short it is. A life that's a long life in this world that isn't lived for the Lord is meaningless. So our goal is always, yeah, I would like to see everybody live to be a ripe old age. But the bottom line is, it's living each day for the Lord that matters. 
And that's where real life comes from. But as a pastor, I, I buried too many kids. I buried too many adults. I buried too many people that committed suicide. And, uh, you know, the Lord didn't want that. He didn't want that to happen. But we have to come to grips with the fact that it is not necessarily that we're going to have long life here and now, but eternal life is coming, and that's the big one. And that's the one we have to lock on. I think we look at the we, – we think of uh, the quantity of life, like how many years. Um, you know, the psalm says, you know, we have 70 years, and if we get 10 more, you know, 80 years, then we're doing really good. Um, it actually, it's kind of funny. In, in, in Israel, amongst Israelis, in Hebrew, you, in, if someone has a birthday, you would say, Yam holedet ad me'asrim. May you have a happy birthday until you're 120. So that's the wish. <laughs> I like and, that. And why? Because it's the same age as Moses when he supposedly passed away uh-huh. at that age. So it's like the blessing. May you have a fruitful life as Moses. But it's not so much the quantity of life. It's the quality of life as yes. well. But to Paul's point in Philippians, it's like, yeah, he was eager to – uh, to to see the Lord because he he had that foretaste of glory divine as the song said, but he said, but right now it's important for me to be with you, and so I said I'm going to make every day count uh, for the Lord while I'm here. Kind of the key to Christian living, Bill, is that we need to live with the anticipation of the life to come, but live it now to the fullest in this life to make disciples out of others, and it doesn't matter the quantity of years I have. It's what I do with those years that really matters. And so I want to impress that on people. Take advantage of the now in serving the Lord and in serving others, because I think too many of us are very good at saying, I'll get around to that someday. We have no guarantee of someday. All we have is this moment. Mm-hmm. All right, I've got a couple of pastors here, so I'm curious as to what you would say to your congregations regarding social media services that oftentimes display very ungodly messages and music? Oh, yeah, it does. But it's all over the place, and I think that people have to have a lot of discernment on that stuff. Um, I have a friend who uh, is very careful about everything he watches. I don't get to watch enough of anything. I'm too busy with other things. But the bottom line is, yeah, you can't let your mind be saturated with the world's philosophy and expect to serve Jesus well. Or your kid's mind to be filled with philosophy. I think the worst thing that's happened to kids in our culture are phones. They've got their eye on the phone all the time. They're not interacting with their parents. And they're getting basically, um, what's the word I want? They're being taught a new way of life that has nothing to do with Jesus through most of this. So I would say be careful and be wise. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting as pastors, if we're if we're lucky to get an hour or two with our parishioners, our congregation, a week, we're doing pretty well. And unfortunately, we have our Christians that are it's less and less of that even. But you got kids and even adults, they're on their phones or other social media hours a day, oh, yeah. and they're being influenced by all these things. And so I think a quick application is this. What are we filling our minds with? Uh, we should, first of all, have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then Philippians 4, 8, uh, basically to think on things that are true and noble and honest and just. So my question is this, if whatever you're watching, uh, and by the way, you know, it wasn't that long ago when people wanted to see something bad, they had to either buy it, go out publicly to get it. But nowadays you can do it in the privacy of wherever. Yeah. And so, but the thing is, what are you filling your mind with? Let it be honoring to the Lord. Does this please the Lord? And so does it cause me to stumble? Does it cause others to stumble? Does it cause the testimony of Christ to stumble? And so those are some good indicators to process that. 
Mm-hmm. Second Timothy 2.15, it's a great verse, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So I've got a couple of theologians uh, discussing something, and they have two very different perspectives. How do we understand their differing opinions or their differing interpretations of the same piece of, of Scripture? Is there a way that you can uh, study thyself approved unto God and you rightly divide the word of truth? Yes. <laughs> I know this yep. is a loaded question because yep. we're going to have differing opinions all over the time or different well, we, perspectives. Well, we do. You know, but the, the bottom line is when you have an opinion, where does that opinion come from? There are theologians that I've heard that have opinions on the scriptures that have absolutely no historical or biblical basis to them. They're simply an opinion. Okay. That's a different thing. What you're looking for is that, let's say that, that Aaron and I have uh, a totally different understanding of whatever a certain teaching may be. The first thing I'd advise the person to do is go to the scripture yourself. If you have any tools that can help you look at the, the Hebrew or the Greek, do that. And try to understand the nuances and where we might be coming from. You may come away from that saying, I agree with Aaron, but I understand what Tom's saying out of that. And we do that a lot as pastors. We see that often when we study the scriptures. It's when we start moving away from the basic teachings of who Jesus is and what salvation is and what forgiveness is all about that I think we're in real trouble. So I would say, you've got the tools today. I was, I, Aaron, I've said this many times. I don't know when you went to seminary, but when I went to seminary, is still the library. I can do more in five minutes on my computer with the Word of God and searching things and in searching things out that I could do in a whole day in the library. And I do that a lot. Every lay person can do that now. You have the advantage of something nobody in history has ever had. Go look it up. Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen, can you talk about the mercy seat in Hebrews 9.5, it's not a seat where someone sits, is it? Then what kind of seat is it? Hebrews 9, verse 5, talk about the mercy seat. It's not a seat where someone sits, is it? Good question. Then what kind of seat is it? So the mercy seat, this is referring to a, a piece of furniture that was in the tabernacle mm-hmm. in the wilderness. So this is referring to what is known as the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. And so the, the mercy seat was, in a sense, that lid or uh, placement that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So it wasn't a place someone actually sat down, per se. In fact, actually, it's kind of interesting when you think of that, Bill, um, that of all the pieces of furniture that was in the tabernacle, there's one thing that was never there. That was a chair. There was never somewhere right. where the priest could sit down and take a break, you know, put up his feet for a minute. Mm-hmm. You didn't find that. They were always working, always ministering. In that, but the seat here talked about mercy seat. It would be a, a placement where, uh, where the blood was sprinkled upon yeah. for the atonement. And if you want to maybe talk about a place that seat, God's work rested on that, so to speak, as a seat. If you want to say that, but it's not a, a seat where someone would sit. The priest didn't sit on things like that. Very good. Yeah, I agree with Aaron. That's exactly what it is. Where the blood was spread, it's where the the mercy of God was seen. Uh, the people understood that's what was going on, and uh, it's really what we have now is that the shed blood of Jesus 
has become literally the mercy seat because Hebrews is basically saying it is his blood that cleanses us from all sin. Mm-hmm. All right, let's stay in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. We all know that verse, for the word of God is living and active, sharper mm-hmm. than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The question is, what does it mean when it says, able to penetrate as far as the separation of soil and spirit, joints and marrow? Of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. When you honestly read the scriptures, when you come under conviction by the Holy Spirit of your own sin, and you look to the Word of God, there's nothing hidden in you that the Word of God will not get down to. It will go to the very bottom of who you are. There are no hidden closets with the Lord. Yeah. In that hidden closet, though, He brings us light, and that's what He offers us by trusting in Him. And so the Word of God is a way to get in there and to begin to open that up. And that's why I encourage people to memorize Scripture or hang it on your wall at home where you can see it because it continually reminds us that we can't play games with the Lord. We can't hide from the Lord. He knows exactly what's going on. And yet in that, He is incredibly merciful with us. And on this side of eternity, He keeps offering us His redemption. It's the inner working of the Word of God in our hearts to the very crevices. Like you said, it was uh, really there's nothing escapes that escapes God's sight and in his work within our lives. So talk about the power of God's word. I mean, it's not just superficial reading to give you a better day. It transforms you from the inside out. Uh, that's the power of his word. Well, Aaron and I, and I know, Bill, you have, we've been reading the, the word of God for a long time. There isn't a day I go by where I don't read the same verse like this one that I read before and say, oh, wow. I didn't realize that before, or that's telling me something new. Because the Word of God is not just a written word, it speaks to our hearts. And it's our hearts that are being revealed, and the Lord is bringing His heart into ours. And that's the goal, that we have the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of how we now live, understand the Word, and treat one another. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll take a break. Lots more Guy Talk. Let me know what you have as a question, 877 933 2484. I'm with Tom Parrish and Aaron Broughton. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold, host of the Afternoon Show. My friend and colleague, Susie Larson, will say that even when you feel discouraged, God is still there. He's still good. He cares about you and is in the business of fixing what is broken to make you whole. Experience his peace today. This month, thanks to our friends at Thomas Nelson, Faith Radio is giving away 100 copies of Susie Larson's new book, Waking Up to the Goodness of God, 40 Days Toward Healing and Wholeness. You can enter to win yours right now at MyFaithRadio.com. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. If you've missed any of this show, it's been a wonderful time of Guy Talk. Aaron Broughton is my new power panel person today, and Tom Parrish. We're enjoying all the questions that have come in, and there's been great questions. Gentlemen, I'm going to take a small, short detour with you guys, all right? I'm going to ask you the last 
emotion that you experienced? And I'm going to give you mm, like five of them. Fear, anger, disgust, sadness, or surprise. What was the last emotion you feel like you experienced? Might have been today. It might have been last week. Fear, anger, disgust, sadness, or surprise. I can honestly say anger. Okay. When when was that, Tom Parrish? Uh, that was today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was this morning. I had breakfast with another pastor and his wife, Jen okay. and I did. We were talking about seminaries okay. and what they're teaching. And I find myself angry at the seminaries because we keep teaching the theology, which is good, but we don't teach practicality. And most of these young men are getting out there and getting eaten alive. And I'm angry about that because I have offered classes and I've taught as an adjunct professor, but nobody's biting at this point. So I, I feel bad about it because I watch these pastors not know how to handle the opposite sex, not know how to handle conflict, not know how to talk to people, but they got great theology. All right. Now, before I ask you, Aaron, and you said anger, Tom Parrish, I'm going to give you another opportunity. If if anger was the most recent emotion, what was second place? Fear, disgust, sadness, or surprise? I'm I'm just digging a little deep today, and I don't know why I'm doing this, but I kind of am entertained by it. <laughs> uh, I would say for me, it, it is a little bit of disgust. Okay. And, and the reason is this. I love the seminaries. I love the professors. Don't get me wrong. I, I, there's nothing there like that. But I get tired of our stupidity. Yeah. That we keep doing the same thing over and over and over, but expecting different results. Yeah. And I see that, and it drives me crazy. And I keep wondering, why is it that we're not going further with the church leaders and training them? At my church this Sunday, after church, we have a two-and-a-half-hour training uh, for leadership. This is the first time they've had leadership training in the church. We're going to train people what it means to be a biblical leader. Mm-hmm. What are the things you need to do? But in most churches— and, and Aaron, I know nothing about yours, but in most churches I'm familiar with, the pastors are well-trained, but the lay people are just kind of on their own, and they need to be trained as to how to do ministry. Mm-hmm. All right, Aaron, fear, anger, disgust, sadness, or surprise? Well, I'd have to say anger as well. Okay. And maybe driving in today, you know, <laughs> <laughs> All right. you know with Minneapolis traffic, you know, but anyways, uh, I think it comes with the territory here. But It does. But uh, actually, anger, true, um, there's a situation that uh, we've been dealing with recently with, within our church. There was We've had several crises, I guess you could say. And, okay. Um, people had one member who was just diagnosed with cancer, for example. Um actually uh, persons in the hospital right now doing with other medical issues and, uh, and, you know, visiting the family and I've kind of been just interacting with them and they have it. And then I kind of, we kind of, as pastor, you kind of shoulder that a little bit that they're having anger because like, why is, I mean, it's like a tsunami. It's like the whole summer has been like one thing after another. Yeah. At what point do you say, God, where are you? Why aren't you intervening? Where are you? God, it's kind of like a Job moment. And uh, so, in a sense, you know, you kind of carry that anger. This morning, I was kind of thinking through my devotions even on that. I said, God, where are you in that? So, I think there's a righteous anger in that. And I think we got to be careful that 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 anger doesn't turn to really sinful thinking and behavior. we got to keep that checks and balances. How do you do that? You look to Christ. You you follow Christ's example. Christ had righteous anger. Yeah. For when sin was rampant, things like that, he stepped in. Um, So, you want me to give the second? 
I'm very curious. Yeah. So <laughs> if you give anger as your first, you've got or uh, the remaining ones are fear, disgust, sadness, or surprise. Um, probably uh, I would say sadness in, okay. a, in a way. I think just kind of looking at our, our fallen world that we have uh, in the situation that just happened, I think kind of a, a fallout reaction would be sadness. Um, and uh, the thing is this, you don't want to be so melancholy that controls your lifestyle. Right. Like everything you see is just gloom and, you know, it's like black and white type of thing. You know, there is real color. I was actually talking with my son here not too long ago, a few weeks ago and talking about, you know, when he was going, he had a tough day. He said, dad, how, and he was being honest, you know, he was just 13. And he said, dad, how do I really know that God is there? You know, he was going, having a rough day. And I said, you know, I said, you know, you know, the sun's out, but you know, what if there's like a really dark day, even stormy day and it's just black, you know, sometimes you get three in the afternoon, it's just black as can be. It says, does that mean the sun's done? Stop working. The sun's not there. I said, dad, you know, the sun's still there. I said, exactly. God is still there. And so I think you got to look through the clouds a little bit, understand that God is there. He has a purpose. And so, but yeah, I think anger and sadness um, definitely kind of blended in together. Mm-hmm. As pastors, you must be kind of uh, a sounding board for a lot of pain and a lot of crisis. And you guys are the go-to men for a lot of families. And you have to try to navigate your way prayerfully with each person that comes with a crisis. Yet you also have to also live life. And like you were saying here, try to not walk around melancholy the whole time. Because I would think the tendency given all the difficult, challenging news that's brought to you, that it would be easy to drift that direction. Uh, actually, just finished preaching a series on Romans 8. Ooh, Romans, Romans 8, 28. Love that. Romans 8, we talked talk about memorization earlier. Yeah. Romans 8, 28 should be one of those ones at the top. Um, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And with that in mind, we said God will work everything out for good. And we think, what does that mean? What is that good? That good, some people say, Lord, just get me through this crisis. Right. But God doesn't waste suffering. He doesn't waste it. He uses it for our good and for his glory. So you look in the context, he does it for us to be conformed to the image of his son, to be like Christ. And then also the end result is that we will one day be, we are glorified. It's as good as done. We, that's our position in Christ. So the child of God knows that everything that works out in our life is done for God's glory and we get the benefit of that. We sh- we're joint heirs with Christ. That's another part of Romans 8. So what a, what a blessing it is to know that we have that assurance. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think one of the problems in, in, that I've had to face in the church is that most people don't want to hear a depressing sermon. They want to hear joyful things. They want to hear victory. We love the testimonies where people yeah, overcome. I agree. Part of the problem is people don't always overcome the way we think they should overcome. doesn't mean the Lord didn't do it. But we look at that, and, and I've told you this story before, Bill, that when I grew up in my home church, we had three daughters all die at age 12. They were 12, 10, and 8 of the same disease. Hmm. And we prayed and prayed over them and whatever else, and we had three funeral services. Theologically, that's a tough one to explain in the midst of that. And yet in the midst of that, I remember thinking, Jesus rose from the dead. And even though those girls only got to 12 years old, they're with him now eternally. Without that hope, I could have easily given up. And I think that we have to give people the hope that even in the midst of the despair and the pain in this world, 
Jesus still is going to have the final word. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Yeah, I heard a pastor was saying once that he went and visited a, a father who was uh, called to the jail because his son was in jail, and he ran down to the jailhouse that night to go be with him. And he said, I was offering him some condolences about the situation and praying with him. And I said a couple of things to him and he said, it was so profound what you said to me that night. And he goes, well, that's all stuff I already preached in in church. I've already all said all that in a church service. But the fact that I was with you that night saying things you've already heard for some reason that night is when it's stuck in your brain. So the fact that you're conducting these services, Tom, being a loving, caring pastor doing that is what they remembered. I'm guessing. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I'm often astounded, Aaron, you probably had this. I have people come up to me and say, you know, when you said this six years ago, it really touched and changed my life. I don't even remember what I said, but I do know the Lord worked through that. And that's what I'm banking on every time I preach or teach or try to stand up for the Lord. He's going to work through it. He's going to do it. It needs to be done. All right, lightning round, one more question, about 40 seconds left. As Christians, are we supposed to fast, and does fasting mean not eating? <laughs> I just did a big teaching on this, but you can go first, Aaron. This is not a good question to answer before dinner. I know. No, no, right. exactly. Fasting, I think, is a, is a serious thing that uh, believers, we're not obligated to do it, but I think there is a uh, a purpose to it, even as Jesus Christ fasted. And the purpose of that is ultimately to make us dependent on, on God. Amen. Yeah, yeah and, and I— Teach fasting, but I tell people, look, fasting is designed so you spend more time with the Lord. It's not just to quit eating. Uh, It's not just to lose weight. It's to spend time with Him in prayer. No, it's not a diet thing. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you. And Aaron, thank you for doing God Talk today. It was fun. Been a delight having you. Aaron Broughton has been, uh, and Tom Parrish have been my guests today on the Power Panel. Uh, Appreciate them and what you guys do uh, faithfully every week. You come and you help this program, and so many people with questions about their faith and how it applies in their life today. Sometimes you can hear a great sermon, but you walk away going, how does that apply to my life? Well, hopefully you get it here at God Talk. That is our show for the day. Have a great, great night. Thank you for spending time with me. I've loved being with you. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.